run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. David Richards. Hi. Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Aaron Lesang. Hello. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Let us know who you are, what you do, why you're famous. Why I'm famous. So I'm a Ruby dev. I've been doing Ruby for about a decade now. That's kind of scary to say. Um, I freelance and took some time and wrote a book called Mastering Ruby, Strings and Encodings. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And so I was doing that. And then I also worked on a gym called Active Interaction, which is a service object gym that lets you use service objects in Rails and had an article on that recently that uh, got some attention, kind of went against Avdi on service objects, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Ooh, Avdi fight. Like it already. (laughs) (laughs) That's an Avdi getting. Yeah. Um, so, so you wrote a book on strings, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Um, is there, is there a book's worth to write on strings? I mean, it's just characters, right? Oh man. Uh, there's <laughs> definitely a book's worth and, and it's really, it's strings and encodings cause you can't talk about one without the other. They're kind of right. two sides of the same coin. Right. And there's a lot to cover there and a lot in Unicode and <clears throat> it's, it's more than you might suspect. Yeah. So, Chuck, you've obviously never tried to store an emoji in a database. (laughs) (laughs) No, I haven't, actually. (laughs) So let me ask you this, Aaron. Do you know the original, the reason why strings are called strings? You know, I I tried to dig into this because it is a weird name, right? And Mm -hmm. the best I could find was that they were originally referred to as strings of characters, kind of like you'd say like a string of pearls or a string of beads. Mm-hmm. And because programmers are lazy, uh, they just kind of started referring to them as strings over time. And eventually that's stuck. And that seems to be where we're at today. Wrong. <laughs> wrong, sir. <laughs> that's a good guess, though. So the actual reason, and I'm this is like the only valuable input I'm going to provide to this conversation. The actual reason is the old typesetting, where the old printing presses used to typeset, they would use strings to build the lines of code or the lines of text for the uh, printing press. So they called them strings. Strings became uh, called that because it actually carried characters. It, it tied characters together on the string. 
I feel smarter now, but I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> so, so strings, right? I mean, we can talk about encodings here in a minute, but strings just seem so simple to me, right? I mean, you know, I set the encoding on my app and then I have a whole bunch of characters that mean something that I put somewhere or pull out of somewhere and that's it, you know, strings. So, so what, what is there? What, what is there to them? Or why you know, do they matter? Maybe we should back up. Why, why does it even matter? Well, so I was kind of thinking about this and I was thinking about value objects, right? Like uh, holding an email address, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times people use strings for that. Um, they use strings for IP addresses, even though Ruby and its uh, standard lib has an IP package, an IP address package. We use strings anyway, right? We're kind of, they become this lazy omni type, right? It's, I mean, there's even kind of a pejorative like string typing. So they end up being a lot of things that they're not, right? They, that aren't just strings of text in a lot of cases. There I hear this argument for nil or against nil a lot, right? We don't know what it means. But in this case, they have more significance than just a string of characters. Yeah, I mean, certainly the argument is very similar, right? Is that you you mask the real data types with strings. And they end up being kind of the intermediate for a lot of things too, right? We serialize a lot of things into strings that aren't... Um, I mean, one of the... so. Richard Sneeman wrote uh, the foreword for my book. And one of the things he put in there is that, you know, the internet is powered by multi-million dollar string manipulation machines, right? Like we, we take a string input and we do a bunch of stuff and then we give a string back, right? They become this intermediary for things. Um, the other piece is they're one of the only data structures that kind of lies to you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you look at an array and it's a list of things. You look at a hash, it's kind of a, you know, a lookup table, um, but a string will lie. It can be different things under the hood than what you see. You know, and it makes sense in the editor, like nobody wants to look at code points and try to figure out what that means. Um, but the reality is you may look at a string that looks like it's four characters, call size on it, and get back a six. Right? And right. there aren't many data structures that do that to you. Well, I know I've been lied to enough by strings. Um, <laughs> I, but, but I tend to be lazy about it and I'll go to Stack Overflow and say, this was the problem I just got and let somebody else think for me. So I'm really looking forward to actually understanding what I, what I don't know yet. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do that. Um, and that's one of the dangers of it is when you don't understand something, uh, you may be able to go find a quick answer, but you don't necessarily know the things you don't know, right? And so not understanding why you got a six back for the length of something that looks like it's four characters. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that can come into play there and a lot of other issues it can cause that you're not going to find on Stack Overflow. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a quote. Um, I can't source it. I don't know exactly where it came from, but somebody smart once said, never delegate understanding. So other people can do work for me or whatever, but I, at some point I have to understand what's going on. Yeah, I love that. That's a great quote yep. for whoever it's from. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody <laughs> smart. Source. Smart person. So then uh, there are a couple of things. I mean, one is, is the meaning of the string then completely subjective depending on the context? 
And if you don't have the context, uh, I mean, some of them seem pretty obvious, at least for me to look at them, but the computer doesn't always have that capability. So, so how do you think about those issues when you're talking about strings? Is it a matter of creating an object around it, or is there a better way of thinking about it? I mean, I think in some cases it, it's a mix, right? So there are times where context is important, right? Certain languages, for example, uppercase and lowercase things differently, even though mm-hmm. it's the same character, right? And they kind of in 2.4, uh, they added upcase and downcase have the ability to handle like Turkish. Um, Lithuanian's not quite in yet. They've got the flag there, but more to come. So to handle some of those kind of things, and that is a, a context thing. Some of it really is a, a code thing, though, because there are things you can do like normalization forms that dictate how the string will react and what it will do. And those are things that if we were looking at code points, we would see. But since we look at characters, it's all sort of abstracted away from us and hidden. Now, when you talk about normalization forms, what do you mean exactly? So this is one of the big things I think a lot of people don't realize is Unicode defines uh, four normalization forms for characters. So what that means is that if you've got, let's say, an A with an accent over it, there is an individual Unicode character that represents that. Mm -hmm. You can also represent that with an A followed by a separate second character that is a conjoining accent. So that's where you get situations where a string will say it's two characters long because those are both technically characters as far as Ruby is concerned. Um, you can convert between those different types. So the single character type is the NFC type, which is the normal form canonical composition type. The split is the decomposed type. So NFD, which is normal form canonical decomposition. And you can switch between these two, but that has certain issues along with it. Sometimes you lose data in that transition. It's not a perfect lossless setup. Um, And those are things that you can programmatically check, right? They're not context specific. There's also uh, two other forms. There's an NFKD and an NFKC, which are kind of the same. But instead of just splitting those types of characters, they are much more liberal in what they handle. and I try to remember that because they use K to represent the word compatibility, which I feel like is a pretty liberal <laughs> thing to do. So it's kind of my like way to remember. But that'll do things like there are Unicode characters that are uh, script letters. So like a script A, and it will convert those. So you'll get like a regular A, which can be really helpful if you're trying to build in search or sorting, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it'll do things like rip apart ligatures. Um, which, you know, are single code points that represent several characters kind of put together. It's a nice visual thing. But the problem is you can't reverse that, right? Like, it can't look at uh, FFI and decide that that should be a ligature of FFI. So all of these have potential for loss within them and sort of weird things that can happen as you go about them. So it's good to know what some of those edge cases are, I guess. So, um... (laughs) wanting to be one of the cool kids um, and having normalized or clean code. If I, if I, if I got strings coming from, I don't know where, and I'm not quite sure how they were set up, what would you suggest I, I, I do to it to, to make sure that it's consistent? So it kind of depends on what you want to do. Um, one general thing is always keep a copy of the original, right? Um, 
you can normalize it and do whatever you want. But if you've got a copy of the original, you can always go back and fix whatever thing you did, you know, or adjust it later. If you're um, looking to do sort of basic search stuff, just doing a composition on it might be enough so that your character is the literal A with an accent, let's say. The, the downside of this is that there are some characters that are identical. So if you've got, for example, the Greek Omega, uh, that's the same character that's used as the character for Ohm in physics, right? Mm-hmm. If you call composition on that, it will every single time convert it to the Greek one. Because the way composition works is it first breaks the letter down and then it recomposes it back together. So this is one of those examples where you can potentially lose data. Um, it also happens on like the A with a ring above it is the same symbol that was used for angstrom. So like that will always break down to A with a ring over it. So you that's why you should always keep the original is you potentially lose data out of this. If you're trying to do something like searching, you're probably better off going with the compatibility forms because... Again, that'll break down fancy looking characters like on Twitter, right? If you have like somebody who's decided to script their whole name out and you want to be able to search for them, the NFKD, the compatibility decomposition will break that down into its original characters that people are more familiar with. So, you know, that'll give you an opportunity to have something that's good to search against. The downside is it will break down things that have meaning sometimes. So if you've got like three to the power of two, Right. If it's like um, someone's entered math stuff. Right. And they've got three and then a superscript two, it will change that to 32. Which is, you know, clearly things are going to go wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That would be a bad day in rocket flight. Right. It's an off by five (laughs) error instead of an off by one error. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So how often do these things come into play? Because, I mean, most apps that I've built, you know, hasn't really been an issue. But then I start doing international stuff, I guess, and then it starts to become an issue. Is that the most common place where these things come up? Or are we looking at at other things as well? I mean, you've given other examples that are more mathematical or scientific. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest case most developers are going to run into is internationalization type stuff. Um, Where you've got an app and you think all your users are typing English. Uh, into it and then you come to find out that no there's a subset that are using it for something entirely you know different and are out of you know china or somewhere like this and suddenly you're sorting and all this kind of stuff gets just crazy and out of whack um but there are also security implications around it so this actually came up recently with google um they had a fake whatsapp clone put into the app store and downloaded by like a million people no way yep (laughs) wow (laughs) And it was a Unicode character issue. So what they did was the the people who put the app in, they put their dev ID as WhatsApp, and then they put an invisible Unispace character at the end of it. So it was unique. It didn't you know didn't conflict with the uh-huh. existing. And Google let it through. And oops, you know. So there's definitely some security <laughs> ramifications around like spoofing <laughs> usernames with zero width joiners or hair width spaces or invisible plus signs or any of the other crazy stuff you'll find inside of Unicode. I mean, wouldn't people realize like, Hey, I already have WhatsApp downloaded. Oh, Hey, look, I can download it again. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, if it's timing, right, mom, we want to talk to you. You want the kids want to talk to you over WhatsApp. And so she goes and gets the wrong one, you know? 
Yeah, and then you see it has a million downloads, so it's like surely that's a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's scary. All right, so now I'm 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 going defensive for a second. Like, all right, so I build a form, <laughs> I get somebody's input in. Um, what do I do? Like to protect myself, like, like something could be in there. I mean, say it's a Ruby backend. What what am I what am I to do now? It's a great question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of the data that comes in is probably fine. And, you know, if someone has an extra space after their name, it may not be the end of the world. Um, It's more concern, I think, for the biggest things that uh, I've run across anyway are security, right, where you've got usernames and things like that that you need to make sure, you know, good to go um, and don't have any of these crazy characters inside of them. Um, Sorting and searching right, are all very clear places where you need to be careful. So you can take the data in. If you're going to make it searchable, like I said, maybe have a second field that's the normalized form um, that they can search against, right, or put that into Elasticsearch or however you're doing your search stuff. Um, But for most texts, you're probably okay, right? It's Most things are pretty harmless. You know, I would uh, say circling back to the security aspect, you also have to be careful with cross-site scripting and stuff with strings. You don't want to just simply call raw or something like that on a user input. You want to make sure that you're sanitizing it first because otherwise they could put in some JavaScript in there that's going to affect everybody You know, that's using your application. Yeah, that's true, especially in Rails. Like HTML safe is your friend, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So one other thing that I've wondered about is um, the character sets. Uh, you know, you've you talked about Unicode, and then there's also UTF-8, UTF-16, UTF-32. And generally, I mean, I, I've used all of them probably in different apps, um, but I've never really made a deliberate decision. It's usually just the default is what we go with, unless, you know, somebody does something weird. And I've only had that kind of encoding crop up as an issue once or twice where I had one system talking to another and there was just some weird character issue between them. What What's really the difference? Why would you pick one over the other? Well, so UTF-8, uh, UTF-16, UTF-32 are all uh, implementations of Unicode, right? Okay. It's one thing a lot of people get confused about. Like Unicode is the character set and then those are implementations of that same character set they just are represented differently within the system. So UTF-8 uses eight byte seg- or uh, yeah eight bit segments to represent um, the strings, and they are variable in in length, right? So you can have between one and I think three is the most or four is the most to run into, um, but in theory it could grow beyond that. UTF-16 uses a minimum of sixteen bits for every step, and uh, UTF-32 uses 32, which is enough by itself to cover the entire spectrum of uh, Unicode. The advantage to UTF-8 over the other two, and the reason it's the most common, is because it generally does well with storage, um, and it is backwards compatible with ASCII and with uh, ISO 8851 or 8859-1, which is the you know Latin one we probably run into in the past, right? Mm-hmm. So it gives you really good backwards compatibility with all that. And it gives you good space savings. Um, UTF-32 is 
if you have an advantage to doing fixed length, right? Like if you're uh, able to jump some number of characters, if you're doing very long uh, blocks of text and you want to be able to jump in some number of characters, it can do that as a single math operation. It doesn't have to go through and count everything like it does with UTF-8. Uh, UTF-16 is is basically like the worst of both. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's variable, so you still have to count. It's larger than UTF-8. It breaks backwards compatibility. The only advantage is that some uh, Asian languages can be stored in less space because they take a single uh, UTF-16 character mm -hmm. as opposed to like three UTF-8s. But generally, outside of that, it's probably something you want to avoid. UTF-8 will get the job done really well most of the time. And part of that probably comes because it was... Uh, it was first introduced by Ken Thompson and Rob Pike. So, you know, some real dummies. Uh, guys who haven't done much. I think <laughs> they made some language at Google Go, I think it's called. Um, so it had some really, really smart people behind it. And um, it does a good job if it breaks halfway through. It's got checks. So, like, if you're transmitting data and it cuts off, it'll know it's not a whole character, things like that. Um, it's a really impressive uh, implementation. Gotcha. So as far as Ruby goes, then do you just, you know, I, I know I've set the encodings before, but I don't remember what, what I did. Well, what does it use by default and how do you change it up? And then at, at the same time, how do you deal with the normalization forms in Ruby? So Ruby uh, defaults to Unicode as of, I think, 1.9, right? It was kind of the big switch mm -hmm. uh, for ASCII. So it defaults to UTF-8, um, which is great. Uh, the unfortunate thing is there's like four different places you can actually set this. So there's a, a file system encoding. There's a uh, system encoding. There's a internal and an external. So what you want to take input as is the external one, right? So you could set it to UTF-16. You could set your internal to UTF-8 and it'll do a conversion for you. Mm -hmm. Um System is what the computer itself is using, and then file system is like what your paths are written out in. So there's a lot of options there, actually, that you can set. Um, thankfully, most of the time, UTF-8 is good enough to get the job done. Ruby kind of handles this stuff for you for the most part. As far as converting, there's uh, a Unicode normalized predicate method that you can use to see if what you've got is good, if it fits into one of the normalization forms. You can also do Unicode normalize and pass it one of these, and it will convert between the different types back and forth. So at this point, Ruby's got pretty decent support. Um, there's a couple of things still missing, like strip. We'll only get rid of ASCII whitespace, right? So if you're mm. trying to strip stuff, you're like it wouldn't have fixed the WhatsApp problem because they used like a Unicode whitespace. So there's still a few minor points, but at this point, the support is pretty decent. It's pretty solid. Sounds like a, a good opportunity for a pull request. Get into the core core Ruby. Add a function here or there. Yeah, update strip to take all that. Mm. <laughs> yep. I'm actually I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been done yet. I wonder what's uh, what's up with that. Maybe we're searching. <laughs> or what's up with that? <laughs> ah, there we go. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, one of the annoying things that I found uh, is dealing with Ruby generated files. So I'll create a plain text file, you know, in Ruby on my Mac. And then 
you know, it has a bunch of carriage returns. Then I go pull it up on Notepad on the Windows machine, and it's all like the same, this all on the same line. I'm like, what the heck? And you know, if you were to read it in, it reads it in just fine. But then you have the silly things where you know it doesn't display right. So people are like, hey, what's wrong with this file? You know, even though I'm using like a, a backslash r backslash n you know, at the end of each uh, line, it still just doesn't parse correctly on some editors and stuff. So what do you do to get around something like that to where is there a universal like carriage return that's, you know, maybe a a Unicode character or something that's just universally known amongst all editors? I'm waiting for the smart aleck, don't use Windows. But I want to hear the answer too. (laughs) Yes, don't use Windows. Um, no, I think we're not allowed to say that anymore, right? That was kind of a thing in the Ruby community for a while. It's like, stop using Windows. And everyone was like, no, people have Windows. We should be friendly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the you know the standard new line is your most universal thing you're going to run across. And Ruby, with the string uh, encode function, can actually convert those for you. Like, you think of encode as a, a way to change from one encoding to another. But there's actually an option you can pass that says, I want to use universal new lines, and it will replace everything with the new line character. Nice. You know, another thing that's bit me, and I know you have it on your notes here, was the, uh, the frozen string literal. One day, I was it was a very late 3 a.m. coding night, and I went through my entire app, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I should put this at the top of every one of my pages. <laughs> not realizing the consequences and then just doing a 4 a.m. push to production. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> that really broke a lot of things because I'm doing some string manipulation in these two files. So and I know this is coming in. Uh, which version is it that's it's going to be immutable by default? Um, so Matt's has mentioned uh Ruby 3 is kind of the place where that might happen, but he's been really cagey about it. So not this last Ruby Kagi, but the one before he said that he didn't want to have that Python 2 to Python 3 moment where he, you know, the community kind of forked and split and had to, you know, solid opinions about which way it should be going and all this. He's trying to keep everything very smooth. I think there's some question as to whether this is something that you can do that won't be hugely disruptive. Um, and then he kind of echoed a similar thing at uh, at RubyConf in New Orleans. He seemed a little more in line with like, yeah, I think maybe we should be doing this. So it's maybe his opinion is shifting back toward this will be the default, but I think it's far from certain. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I've made out of practice is any file that uh, I know I am doing string manipulation on, I will go ahead and put at the top of the file the frozen string literal false to just force override if I ever do upgrade to Ruby 3 or something that I'll have to go back and have that as an afterthought. As a developer, you love building things that are fun and that matter. Me too. Do you want to add authentication to yet another app? Do you want to stay updated with all the security issues and patch them? Why not leave it to the experts? Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. 
allow your users to log in with either regular username and password, social identity providers like Facebook and Twitter, or enterprise identity providers like Active Directory, Office 365, etc. Or without passwords, with an email login like Slack or phone login like WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Add authentication to your Ruby app or Rails app, Sinatra, and others in less than 10 minutes by writing only a few lines of code. No credit card required. Get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. That's the number zero in Auth0. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Bluetooth, Optimizely, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Try it out at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. Remember, that's the number zero in Auth0. And get back time building core features. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. I mean, I'm I'm in favor of the shift. I think it's worth it. I think, um, you know, we kind of saw there was a big moment where everyone started putting dot freeze on everything. And, you know, we shouldn't have to go around and do dot freeze on everything to get, you know, memory gains and, and the benefits of it. And the frozen strings or really immutable strings have a lot of advantages as far as, uh, you know, if you're using them in threads and things. I mean, any immutability is good, right? Anybody who's done... Uh, something like Clojure or Elixir and has worked with that immutability has seen the benefits that can come from that. And I think strings are a great place to to go with that. But like I said, we'll we'll see. It's up to Matt's ultimately. Now, I've spoken with some of our listeners and some of them are pretty new. So do you want to just talk briefly about what the benefits would be for immutability? I mean, you've talked about memory and speed, but, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more of the why, like why it would make a difference. Why is it faster? Yeah, so um, immutability is beneficial because basically anytime you've got two strings that are identical, instead of having to make an entire new one, it can just use the same uh, space and memory, right? So if you have, uh, let's say your app does a bunch of uh, joining with like a single space character, right? Every single one of those and each one within the loop that you may be doing it within is getting created and garbage collected and it's a lot of overhead, so when it's immutable, it will reuse the same one. It's really, we have something like it now. It's symbols, right? Mm-hmm. You Symbols are, are the exact same way. If you use the same symbol multiple times, it reuses the same slot in memory because it knows you can't change it. So what happened was, with this big sort of boom of using freeze everywhere, is it got back a lot of memory within the system because suddenly you know, Rails was filled with all these freezes and all these strings were not getting created anymore and we weren't having to garbage collect that, which is a big performance cost, right, mm-hmm. when you have to garbage collect a bunch of things. So there's a lot of advantages there. With uh, any kind of threading, anytime you have data that's not able to be changed, you lessen the likelihood that you're going to end up with collisions from threads trying to, you know, uh, adjust the same data. So you're better off having frozen things and then uh, using dupe or uh, you can actually use clone now. It's got a frozen false option uh, and just making your own version and knowing that the thing you're messing with is yours and yours alone. Yep. I found that it, it's, you know, it is faster, you know, for, for the, the system to keep up. But it's also been nice when I have immutable systems, just I think differently about my code. It, it organizes different. It seems to to break down a little bit. I separate concerns a little bit more cleanly, so it's a little bit easier to to maintain and hold on to a system that has immutability than than it is if if anything can happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, a while back, I I spent some time. I uh, decided I kind of wanted to 
branch out into something very different uh, programming wise, just to kind of work my mind out a little bit. And I picked up Clojure and I actually recommend it for all of the devs I run across. When people are like, oh, I want to learn another language, I say, you know, go try Clojure. It's very, very different. It's functional, immutable, you know, parens everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, but it really does help and in, in change how you think. And Ruby has enough of those functional things that a lot of it comes back into how you work with Ruby and how you treat things and how careful you are about mutating things that you get, you know, that, uh, variables that you get passed into your method, right? You're much more careful about like, oh, I don't want to change this because the person might not have expected me to, you know, destroy the hash they gave me. Right. So I think it definitely, it improved my programming. I, I think it could be good for everyone to kind of branch out. Love it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I think that's the sentiment that was put into the pragmatic programmer in learning a new language every year was that, you know, you get exposed to these new ways of thinking, new ways of organizing code, and then a new way of thinking about your problem. One experience I had, I was in, um, in D.C. for a closure conference and a lot of people from Utah, from the Ruby community I met, that were there, <laughs> that I knew. Uh, five or six people from Utah had come across the country to, to come to the Clojure Conference. And I find that's really fascinating. I think the Ruby community is full of a lot of learners and people that are refining as they go. It's been a lot of fun that way. Yeah, it's been really nice. And I, I've played with it some. I, I've been too busy. I haven't gotten to, to put in as much time as I want. But I feel like Elixir... Um, I know it's very popular, but I feel like it is kind of a nice combination of um, Ruby and Clojure in a lot of ways, right? There's a lot of stuff they they seem to have lifted off of Clojure, like macros and um, protocols and things like that. And it's also got like the large framework with Phoenix. And that's kind of one of the things I think Clojure is missing that I think Ruby has done really well is even if Rails isn't perfect, it's a really good system to build off of. And it's one where anyone can step into your project and they've got at least some idea of what they're going to look at. And Clojure, uh, one of the things that kind of turned me off from it was that I feel like that's missing in some ways. Um, so I think that could be a place where Elixir ends up being really strong is having that immutability, the functional, and having that framework that the community can rally behind. Yeah, I, I found Elixir and Phoenix are, are kind of the Ruby and Rails for, for Clojure. <laughs> if I can mix all the languages up, it, it has that feeling of, of familiarity that it makes sense. And then, um, it has a lot of the power and the speed. Um, I've really enjoyed building systems with, with these. So what was the thing that you found most surprising in pulling together things for this book? Like what, what, what were the things that you learned that were just kind of mind blowing about strings? I had had a good amount of previous experience. Um, I had done some internationalization, uh, in Perl of all things. Um, and so I had worked on an app that uh, had been changed. And I think, I think we had 15 different languages. Mm -hmm. So I had had some experience with, you know, the pieces of this that happen uh, and the things that come up and the weird character things and, and all that. And so there was some of that wasn't uh, super surprising, but part of it was just the sheer volume of information around strings that, I didn't know it was all the little things, right? It was like the, you know, little paper cuts, right? Kind of thing. There was so much stuff as far as, um, like we even gotten like graph me, uh, graphemes, right. Versus characters versus, uh, what a glyph is and how all these encodings came about and how they work. And 
freezing and there's a lot of stuff that's been added for handling frozen strings. So if you do go with the pragma, um, like you can preface a string with a, a plus and you'll still get a mutable one. Um, so even when they do the frozen one, you can still get mutable strings if that's what you want. A lot of small things like that that added up to just uh, kind of a, it surprised me how many little things like that there were. Do you want to tell us what graphemes and uh, what was the other term you used? Glyphs. Glyphs. Yeah. What are those? So these get interesting. Uh, a a character in the way that Ruby is looking at it is essentially a single code point in whatever encoding you're using, um, which is why you get back weird sizes sometimes if you have uh, strings that include like one of the combining diacritical marks. And uh, a grapheme is essentially what you would expect to get back. Like it will look at those two things and tell you, no, this is actually one character. Um, Matt's gave the example when he was talking about this of actually uh, emoji. So when you work with emoji, you can use zero width joiners to combine them. So you could do like a man joined with a woman joined with a boy. And if the system has support for it and it has the newer stuff, it will display the single Unicode of man, woman, boy, right? That representation of a family. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one grapheme. That's a single thing. So it's essentially if you look at it and it looks like one character, then that's the thing that we should show you. That's the grapheme. Okay. A glyph is just how a character is drawn. So a single character could have a bunch of glyphs, like uh, you've seen A's where they're kind of like the O with a tail versus the one that has like the hook on top. Right? Uh, those are two different glyphs of an A, of the A character. Uh-huh. And it's really nice to see that grapheme support is coming into 2.5. So they're adding... Uh, Graphene clusters method that will get you will essentially get you them as though they were characters like you get like an array of the uh, graphemes and then each grapheme cluster right so you can loop over them because before this you would have had to do it with a regular expression so the regex engine actually would allow you to do this uh, with a slash capital X but you know that's kind of a pain it's nice to see that it's uh, getting first tier support within string itself. I'm all for anything that keeps me from using regex. <laughs> yeah, I think most people are. They're great at times, but oh, they can get crazy. Yeah. Having that Perl background, I'm I'm not super intimidated by them because in Perl, you you know, that's you do that for everything. It's all the things go through regex. Yeah. Well, anything else that we should dive into here with strings? One other thing is I, I think um a lot of people don't really lean on the full library of what they have available to them when it comes to strings. I see a lot of like G sub as kind of the Swiss army tool of modifying a string. Yep. That's um, usually my go-to. Yeah, exactly. And there are things that can be, I think more expressive, uh, delete, right? You can do delete and you can give it a, um, it's kind of hard to describe. I call them character set expressions, but it's essentially like the inside of a, a regex bracket right, where you do like A-Z to, to do A through Z. You can give it things like that and delete 
exactly what you're looking for, right? So you could do something like if you wanted to get rid of all of the accents on a string, you've got the word resume with, you know, this accents over the E's and you want it to just be resume like it is in English with no accents because, you know, we love not being able to pronounce things without context. Like, is it resume? Is it resume? No one knows. Um, what you can do in that case is you can run it through the decomposition step to split it apart and then do delete. And that's actually a range in Unicode. So you can just say delete and then give it the range of those marks and they're gone. And you can store that for, again, like search purposes, sorting, that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, know your methods, read up on them, know your tools. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, what I love about this, this conversation, you know, is, is because it feels like Saturday's cleaning. I don't know if you guys had that in your families growing up, but every Saturday we did a deeper clean and, and I've had probably 20 years or, or more of unclean thinking around what's going on around my characters and my, my, my encodings. And so getting a sense of what's going on here feels like I, I at least would know what to do to, to clean it up or to sort it, you know, pull it out so it's sortable or, or those kinds of things. And that was part of what I was aiming for. Um, so I help run the, the Dallas Ruby group and I talk to a lot of devs and we go over a lot of things. And as I was doing this, I was talking to people and uh, people who had been doing, you know, Ruby for years and they had never heard of a lot of this stuff. And I don't think you have to know every intimate detail. I mean, if you're interested, go for it. It's great. I think there's a lot there. But what I tried to do with the book was cover enough that you understand what's going on. That when you look at it, you have a concept of what's happening and why something might be blowing up in your face, right? And not have to immediately jump to Stack Overflow and find an answer and paste it in and just hope that it's right. Um, and I think that's that's something a lot of people could use. And the nice thing about this is a lot of this stuff is portable. So the book is focused on Ruby um, and how it handles it. But, you know, these normalization forms and things, these are in Unicode, they're just how it works, right? Handling strings and how you can be careful with them and some of the immutability things, even if your language doesn't have it, it's something kind of like you talked about earlier with Ruby that we can incorporate uh, as part of how we write code. All right. Well, I know that some of us have a hard stop here before too long. So um, why don't you tell people where they can get your book? And you mentioned that you freelance as well. So if people think, oh, well, I need this kind of thing. So uh, maybe they'll just hire you. Uh, where do they go for those kinds of things? Uh, so you can go to my website, AaronLosang.com, And you can find everything you need there. It links off to the book. Um, it gives you a way to contact me. At the moment, I'm fortunately booked up. Uh, but that won't last forever, right? So yeah, AaronLosang.com. Come say hi. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. 
VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my first pick is a uh, Firefox Quantum. I had ditched Firefox many, many years ago in favor of Google Chrome. And uh, just with all the hype of Quantum, I gave Firefox another shot. And it's actually a pretty enjoyable browser. I mean, I'm still using Chrome, of course. But, you know, uh, Firefox has definitely uh, gotten some respect back. Nice. The breaking web extensions was a rough part of that transition. Yeah. Like I've been using Firefox for a while and I've got one extension that I, I really like and I haven't been able to convert yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, what are your picks? Okay, first I've got the um, the fill-in for for what I didn't know. It's, it's Charles uh, Ames who said, never delegate understanding. So now you know. Uh, my first pick is uh, Chris.com. That is an old 1990s collection of ASCII art. I feel like that was perfect for today. <laughs> Plus anybody that's got Chris.com, you know, they've been around for a while and uh, that's pretty cool. The other one, I've got this um, total geek crush for uh, Julia Silge, uh, I think is her name. She's a data scientist at Stack Overflow. And she makes things incredibly clear and powerful. And she just wrote a, an article on um, using uh, word vectors with R. And so it's just having to do with learning from text. But the way that she wrote. So I've got a pick that explains how do you learn what's in your text with just a few lines of, of code that actually is really informative and um, powerful. And you don't have to go pick up the the big heavy-duty tools to get it done. You can get it done in a few minutes. All right, Eric, what are your picks? Uh, I've got three of them this time. <clears throat> so one of them is a pretty cool video called The Secret of Luck. And I was watching it, and it's so fascinating to see. There's a study done on the small town, and they started a rumor about a lucky dog that you can go pet. And this rumor spread and it started changing these people's lives. And it's a fascinating documentary. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting to see how people's um, lives can change, not because of a lucky dog, but because of their belief in a lucky dog. Um, the other thing that uh, I'd like to share is uh, there's a blog post called Do Things That Don't Scale uh, by Paul Graham wonderful post. Um, that's kind of, uh, how, how my life has been lately. And so it's, uh, it's going from a non-scale to a scaling approach, but it's, it definitely drives, uh, it allows you to feel the pain before you can come up with a proper solution. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, we, uh, my wife and I, uh, have been watching this show on HBO called girls. And if you want to watch something that's incredibly entertaining um that is a show that i recommend so that's mine awesome i'm gonna jump in here with a few picks um 
One of the first ones is something that I, I know we've talked about on this show, but I just keep coming back to how awesome Slack is. And so I'm going to pick Slack. Um, and then another thing that I'm going to pick, and this is sort of in pre-release. Um, I'm hoping that it'll be out soon. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to Microsoft Connect, which is their... It's, it's not really a conference. It's kind of a conference. Um, but it's mostly for like partners, Microsoft partners. And a bunch of folks brought a bunch of podcasters in to, uh, to interview Microsoft folks while they were in New York City. Um, and so I was one of the folks that went out there for JavaScript Jabber. And anyway, uh, besides it being a tremendous time, if you've been using Visual Studio Code, they announced a new um, sharing service that's built into it. Um, and like I said, it's, it's kind of in pre-release. It's not really out yet. Um, but they showed it off. You can go watch the videos from Microsoft Connect. Um, if you're looking it up, you have to look it up as, as Microsoft Connect, open paren, close paren, semicolon. Because um, I guess they have another system called Connect. But uh, anyway, if you go watch the keynote, um, you can see what they're doing. And essentially what it does is it allows you to send a link to somebody that you want to collaborate with. And then... Um, it, it'll share your session on Visual Studio Code with their session of Visual Studio Code or Visual Studio. And so you can highlight a section of code and say, this is what I'm trying to figure out. This is what I'm trying to do. They can actually change the code and it'll reflect on your machine and run on your machine. So like if you're working on Ruby or Node or something like that, um, it makes the changes on, on your machine. They don't actually have to have Ruby or whatever installed. And so it's, it's a really, really interesting thing. But the other thing is, is it has all their tools and highlighting and everything installed. So like if you use Vim key bindings and they have Emacs key bindings, it doesn't matter because, uh, you know, your editing experience is your own, but um, sharing that stuff, you know, sharing the code and, and communicating and highlighting and all that stuff, um, you know, that all shows up for both of you. So anyway, it was really, really, really cool. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and pick that. Um, and then one last thing is I have committed at this point to putting together podcasts for react and view. So if you are Yay. using either of those, um, and you have recommendations for guests or for panelists or for speakers at react remote conference, which I'm putting together at the end of February, um, just email me Chuck at devchat.tv and let me know. Um, I should have an Indiegogo up, uh, by December 4th. And this will come out after that anyway. But that's that's my drop dead date. That's when I'm committed to putting an Indiegogo up. I'm looking to just get a, a couple thousand dollars to cover the basically the production costs for both of those shows. So um, there'll probably be one for one and one for the other. And uh, that'll cover all the hosting and editing and all that fun stuff. Um, and then I'm working to get... We had um, Chris Shadow and Jordan Walk on JavaScript Jabber to talk about um, React, and I'm hoping to get them or people who are around when it started because that seems that just seems like a great way to kick off the show is to talk about how React started. So, and same thing for Vue. We've had Evan Yu on this the show, and I'm trying to get him on to start that one off. So, uh, you know, as first guests. So, if you can facilitate any of that, that would also help. But yeah, those are things that I'm working on at this point. So if you're interested in any of that, just shoot me an email and let me know 
if you have imp- input because um, I'm, I'm building a list. I've got quite a few people on the list, but um, I, I'm, I'm not completely sure what the shape of that is going to be yet. And as much input as I can get means that I'll give you what you want. So anyway, just throwing that out there. Um, Aaron, what are your picks? Uh, so I've got three picks. They're all things that people recommended to me so that I would kind of pay it forward. Uh, the first is devdocs.io. It's a really great site for going through documentation. They've got all the Ruby stuff. They split it by versions. Uh, they have popular libraries like Rails. If you're into JavaScript, they have um, Lodash and, and some of those kind of things. And it's just a really good tool. It's open source. So it's a good place to go. You can also save stuff so it's offline, uh, which is kind of nice. The second pick is the album Rose Mountain by Screaming Females. They're a punk band, and the whole album is just really solid. You can find it on uh, Google Play, Spotify, probably other. Um, I would guess Apple Music probably has it. But it's a, a really good album. If you listen to it, if you like the first song, you'll probably like the whole thing. And the last one is a podcast that was recommended to me. Uh, it's a history comedy podcast. It's called The Dollop. So basically, one of the uh, the people, Dave Anthony, reads about a historical event that happened. And then the other host, Gareth Reynolds, has never heard any of it before, is listening at the same time you are, and just kind of comments on the whole thing. And they find very interesting subjects. They did one on P.T. Barnum, and, I mean, they didn't even get to the circus part in like an hour and a half. Just all the awful stuff he did. He's a horrible human being. Uh, They had another one on uh, this FedEx flight where this guy tried to crash the plane like he wanted to get life insurance money. And so he went after the pilots with like a spear gun. I mean, just wild, crazy things. Uh, so they find some really interesting historical stuff. It's not all horrible people, um, but it's a, a really good show. If you're into that kind of uh, stuff, I, I always like a good history comedy combo. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Aaron. Really appreciate you coming and talking to us about strings and encodings. A lot more there than I thought there would be. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. All right, well, we'll wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.